Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for this day and this opportunity to look back over the history that is so near and dear to Your own heart. And I pray that it would yield much fruit in this class. I pray that we would learn much, that even as we evaluate our own day, uh, that we would learn how to live, that we would use our freedoms in a right way, that we would love uh, the history of the church and and realize that we stand on the shoulders of men who have gone before us and that these men and women have sacrificed much uh, so that we can be where we are at today. Most of all, I pray that the focus would be Christ and that we would glorify Him. Uh, he is the one that is building the church and and Lord, we recognize that none of these men and women that we'll be talking about can save our souls. They can't, they, can, they can't do anything apart from your work in them. And so that's what we recognize is your work, your grace, working in these men and women. And Lord, we're thankful for our great country. And I, we love our country. We're, we're grateful for the history of it. We're thankful for the remarkable providences that we've seen in our history. And, and Lord, we don't know what the future holds, but... Maybe, just maybe, you might do another great work. And so as we look back, I pray that we would long for that, that we pray for that, recognizing that you are the one who causes nations to rise and fall. And so uh, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, my lofty title uh, really comes from Cotton Mather's uh, book, his magnum opus, uh, Americana Christi Magnolia, that is... Uh, um, the Great Works of Christ in America. And basically, Cotton Mather was the first true um, historian in our country. And he did just wrote two great volumes and very helpful to understand life in the early part of our country. Uh, but one thing about him, and I think it's interesting, is he was known as a lover of Jesus Christ. Uh, and John Eliot, you might know that name, he was an early missionary to the Indians in uh, our uh, part in, in America. By the way, I'm probably not as politically correct um, as I'm talking, so I hope I don't offend anybody, but I still call them Indians. Um, and he was, a, he, was, he was a missionary to the Indians, and um, he said that Mather, Cotton Mather, was a lover of Jesus Christ. Isaac Watts, we know him as the hymn writer. Isaac Watts wrote, I have never read a life of stricter piety, of warmer zeal for God, of greater diligence and duty, and more generous love to men. The reason why I say that is, is Cotton Mather loved Christ as much as he could. That was his testimony, but he also loved his country. And, and today, there's this, you can't love Christ in your country. It, it, it seems a foreign concept. It's almost if you love America, then you can't really be a good Christian. When if you want to look back at the preachers and all the men of our early country, a good Christian was somebody who loved his country. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about that, how to do that rightly. Piety is always more important than patriotism, always. But a pious man makes a good patriot in the right way. And, and so how does that all work out? That's just one part of what we're doing. But I love our country, but maybe not so much, and I hope you do, but, but what we're going to find out is the country that we see today is the country that they would have grieved over and we love. Something's wrong. Uh, something's wrong here. What has, what, has, what has happened? What has happened to America? 
Now, again, America is not the church. We need to be very, very specific about that. America is not the church, but America started from the church. Uh, we'll talk about that today as well, which makes it very difficult at times to distinguish between American history and church history in America. Not all church history in America is good history. We're going to talk about that. Lots of bad doctrine springs up in America because of the freedom that we have to promote everything we want to promote. Um, but we have a, a great and rich spiritual heritage in our country, and, and so I, I am excited to, uh, to go over this. Now, Ian Murray wrote about the time we're going to be studying right now. Uh, and Ian Murray was, of course, who did he work with? Who, was, who did he work closely with? Martin Lloyd-Jones, right? And was his biographer, has written great books. He loves American history. I think he's Scottish. Um, but he wrote this, as you can see, there is a strong case for believing that in the Christian history of North America, no period was more formative or significant in long-term influence than that of the Second Great Awakening. Further, those years from the 1790s to about 1831 contain a storehouse of astonishing records that are without parallel for any comparable, anything comparable in the United States or possibly in any other land since the apostolic era itself. Here he's saying that the, the ground we're going to be treading right now may be the most fertile ground spiritually since the apostles themselves. That's his opinion. Uh, what we're going to see is a whole nation uh, really influenced by Christians. Uh, and Christians who were not sidetracked for the most part, but who loved Christ and loved society. Uh, remember, for them, a good Christian, that Puritan mindset was a good Christian purifies the church, but he also purifies society. That, that's driven. That, that, is, that is your inheritance, if you want to put it that way. If, Ameri if you feel the need for that, you have inherited that birthright, that spiritual birthright from our forefathers uh, because it's woven into the American society. Now, again, there's lots of problems with that because, as we know, as we talked about last time and we'll review, you've got the state early on having its hands in the business of the church. And thankfully, we worked out of that, but we'll, and we'll talk more about that. But the Lord has progressively worked in our country, and that's another thing we need to realize is there is a progression, and no country's perfect. But I do think there's a bullseye on America's back because we started off as a country, as we'll see next week, that basically made a covenant with God, whether or not, again, there's going to be things we may not agree with, or we might say, eh, that's what happened. We're going to talk about history. And Cotton Mather said, you take the good and the bad and with history, but it is history. So regardless, it was when, when John Winthrop left England, he saw God's judgment being poured out on England, and so they wanted to come here. And they told they, their desire was that if America would please God, that it would be blessed. And if we did not please God, that we would be cursed. And so there's a, there's a heavy, heaviness in the starting of America. There's a seriousness. And we're going to see that there's two factions in American history, a serious faction, a true Christian faction that is... That, that for Amer America, the religious liberties are for their desire to please Christ. And then there's the rest that love of religious liberty and liberty to please themselves. And what happens often is, is, is for us, even as Christians today, we want 
comfortable lives. We want religious liberty. We want liberty just to please ourself and get our comfort. But that is not what the true believers down through our history, that's not what they wanted religious liberty for. And so, uh, anyways, that's high praise. That's high. That you, you see the, the importance of the time frame that we'll primarily be dealing with. Um, James Waddell Alexander, uh, who was at Princeton, his dad, Archibald Alexander, we'll talk about him later. One of the major professors at Princeton. Princeton will be a, a, Princeton will hold on to orthodoxy during the 1900s, 1800s, sorry, while all these different things, the different forces are blowing to destroy the church. Princeton stands strong. And the men of Princeton are, are to be commended. Archibald Alexander and, and uh, you know, his sons. You got Charles Hodge, B.B. Warfield later on. Um, again, they, the, the Lord used them in a mighty way. And by the way, those of you that were on our trip earlier this year, I'll tell you later what our tie, Princeton has a direct tie to Grace Community Church, or an indirect tie, I would say. Uh, and so um, we'll go over that later. But... Uh, J.W. Alexander said this, in case you can't read it, Church history is the record of God our Savior in the unfolding of the method of grace and is thus a history dear to Christ Himself as being that of the Church, which is His body, to which He is united, and also the history of what the adorable Spirit of Christ is doing in regenerating and compacting and glorifying the elect people. Um, what we're studying is at the very heart of Christ. It's His work. It's His work that He died for. It's the work that, that accompanies that. It's the work that he, he died for His elect. He set that up, and as He's building His church, it's all tied into the redemption story. And so what uh, J.W. Alexander is saying here is, look, history is important because it's important to Christ. History ought to be important to every Christian, not because it's some personal hobby, not because it's just something that you naturally like. It's because it's important to Christ himself. And so it ought to be important to the church. So very, very important there. Um, you all know the, probably the quote by Edmund Burke, the Irish philosopher, who said, those who don't know history are what? Doomed to repeat it. Well, it's still true in the church. There's so much we're going to learn that we don't have to repeat the mistakes, but also that we can go, we're making mistakes, and maybe we need to listen to some guys from the past. Okay? J.C. Ryle, by the way, said, I entreat my readers, besides the Bible and the articles, to read history. So, history, very important. Hope I don't have to sell that anymore. But I always show this slide, uh, and that is uh, church history. To This is church history to most people. Sally is writing her paper, and uh, then she says, When writing about church history, we have to go back to the very beginning. Our pastor was born in 1930. <laughs> and, uh, but that's church history for most people. Whatever church they were saved in or started attending or grew up in, that's church history, right? And that's the extent. That's, that's what they believe. That's what they know. They rarely go back because most churches don't teach it. And so uh, if your church history, when you start thinking about church history, if you go back to just the time you were saved or the church you were brought up in, 
Well, church history is a lot deeper than that. So, um, so learn. I think Charlie Brown gets the right idea. Uh, he appears to, at least by his face. <laughs> All right. Here's the next thing. America is a product of the Protestant Reformation. Very, very important because as we see, as we start looking at some of the enemies that come up against Christianity in America, they're coming up against, a word I'm going to use a lot in here, Calvinism. Uh, we are a Calvinist country when we start off. Uh, and, and I hope you're not uncomfortable with that word because you go to a Calvinist church. Um, remember, Calvinists, as we'll see in a minute, are not followers of Calvin. They believe that God is sovereign in salvation. That's what we'll boil it down to. Calvinists come in from where? Come from Presbyterians, Congregationalists, Baptists, some Anglicans, uh, some Methodists. So, uh, and we're going to talk about the importance of holding on to the doctrines of grace as we move a little bit further into our study because everything's at war with those doctrines, um, everything, including the, the, the revolution itself. What, what, not the revolution, but those tied into it, a lot of that's going on there. All right, so very important. So the religious character of North America, viewed as a whole, is predominantly of the Reformed or Calvinistic stamp. To obtain a clear view of the enormous influence which Calvin's personality, moral earnestness, and legislative genius have exerted on history, you must go to Scotland and to the United States. That's by Philip Schaff, the well-known church historian. Let me have another quote. Merle Diabonet, very famous uh, historian from a couple centuries back. Calvin was the founder of the greatest of republics. The pilgrims who left their country in the reign of James I and landing on the barren soil of New England founded populous and mighty colonies, were his sons, his direct and legitimate sons. And that American nation, which we have seen growing so rapidly, Boast as his father, the humble reformer on the shores of Lake Lehman. Um, again, two well-known historians, right? Uh, one more. He that will not honor the memory and respect the influence of Calvin knows but little of the origin of American liberty. Uh, another one said John Calvin was the virtual founder of the United States of America. Why? Because Calvin established Geneva... Uh, this place that John Knox called the most perfect school of Christ on earth. Geneva, where this whole town was transformed from a wicked, ungodly place. Calvin comes in and was everything perfect? No. We're, as a minute, we'll, sh we'll, sit, we'll explain. We are not followers of Calvin. But through Calvin, that whole town was changed. Not through Calvin, per se, but what the Reformation started in proper exposition of God's Word and the, the power of the Bible and so on, uh, it is through that. But I will say that right doctrine matters, and we're going to, to work on that. But the fact of the matter is, is that the pilgrims were descendants, spiritual descendants of John Calvin. The Puritans were spiritual descendants of John Calvin. And I don't know about you, but I would claim to be a spiritual descendant of John Calvin because my, at least in my soteriology, I am not a Presbyterian. I am not a Congregationalist. I am a Calvinistic Baptist. But we don't need to be afraid to use words. You understand that Baptist is a, was a slang term. It was a, not a term of endearment. Puritan was not a term of endearment. Uh, and as Spurgeon said, Calvinism is just a nickname for the gospel. 
So as you, as you are thinking through that, if, we have a, if you have a few in here, I don't know if, if there's anybody that bothers at all. Uh, but if it does, understand we're just using that term because in this era of history, that was, that was the term being used for the doctrines of grace and, you know, reformed doctrine. So, but just so you know that our country knew that it was not a follower of Calvin, but of Scripture, John Robinson, the, the pastor of the pilgrims who was not able to come over on the Mayflower, he stayed with that part that stayed in England. He said this, Brethren, we are now quickly to part from one another, and whether I may ever live to see your face anymore, the God of heaven only knows. But whether the Lord have appointed that or no, I charge you before God and before His blessed angels that you follow me no further than you have seen me follow the Lord Jesus Christ. If God reveal anything to you by any other instrument of His, be as ready to receive it as ever you were to receive any truth by my ministry. For I am verily persuaded, I am very confident, the Lord hath more truth yet to break forth out of His holy word. For my part, I cannot sufficiently be well the condition of the Reformed churches who are come to a period in religion and will go at present no further than the instruments of their first reformation. The Lutherans cannot be drawn to go beyond what Luther saw. Whatever part of his will our good God has imparted and revealed unto Calvin, they will rather die than embrace it. And the Calvinists, you see, stick first where they were left by that great man of God who yet saw not all things. Don't imagine that Luther or Calvin in a few years could put everything right. They dealt with these great central fundamental truths of the faith but they had not got the time apart from anything else to work out all these other matters. So what's the, what's the idea here? John Robinson is telling them, we are not followers of Luther. We are not followers of Calvin. We're followers of the Word of God. And as the Word of God brings out more truth, we're going to follow that. Okay? So, so understand that, that nobody, in, when in, nobody that says, uses the word Calvinism is a follower of John Calvin. In fact, if you are sitting here today, and even whether you want to use that word or not, if you believe the doctrines of grace, then you probably believe the doctrines of grace because the Bible actually just teaches the doctrines of grace. And most of you probably didn't pick up Calvin first. We only agree with Calvin where he agrees with the Word of God. And when you start reading the Word of God, you realize that Calvin was right in a lot of places. Uh, and obviously, we did not believe he was right in, for instance, infant baptism or certain aspects of some of his governmental thoughts. So... But the reality is, is no man gets it all right. But America was the product of the Reformation. We need to really understand that. Okay? Very, very important. All right. Um, so let me just say that uh, before we go into what we're going to be talking about this time, at times in our history, America was in a very, very bad place. And one of the unique things about America, and Ian Murray points out multiple times, is we have seen spiritual awakenings where our country was brought to the very brink of collapse. And in God's providence, He brought about revivals. I'm not talking about revivals like we're seeing in our county in the last few days. I'm talking about real revivals. I'm talking about ones that God sovereignly brings through the preaching of His Word. And there are certain marks of that. We'll talk about last week. We'll review those. But the reality is you can't, as we'll see... Uh, you can't drum up a revival. You can't say, I'm going to revival service. And so it's important that we understand that God is sovereign in these things. And, but through these awakenings, our country time and time again has been revived, saved from the brink of ruin. 
And one of the things that I want us to at least consider in this class is, is our country done? Is it done? I like that answer. Could it be done? Could be. Does it look like it's going to be done? What's that? Well, and you know what? If you look back in American history, you would think it was done multiple times. And, you know, God's people began praying instead of just saying America's done. And God in His sovereignty brought revival and changed the course of our history. Um, one of the things I'd like us to consider in this class is, are you praying for revival? Again, we need to, we're going to talk through, expand on what we did in part one and make sure we have an understanding of revival, a biblical understanding. God may not choose to do that. There have been generations that prayed fervently for revival and God didn't bring it. Um, we may not see it. We might be at the end. Tomorrow may be the end. We don't know, but how sad it would be if we're not on our knees praying and grieving for our country. Aren't you glad that your grandparents, grandparents, grandparents cared about religious liberty and thought it worth fighting for? Uh, we're sitting here today because of that. Not because, I, regardless of what our understanding and, and different things are, we are, we in God's providence, we have the blessing of sitting here in freedom. Nobody came to church today fearful that they were going to be persecuted yet. Probably coming, but not yet. You get to come to the church that you choose. You get to, you know, you weren't, uh, you you weren't going to be fined for coming to this church. Um, you, if you didn't baptize your child, you, what, you, you, you weren't going to be thrown in jail. So lots of things here that we are just we don't even think about, but that God in His providence used. Yeah, I'm sorry. Those you know you'll know who said this, but they said so goes so goes our university, so goes the nation. Yeah. And there's a nexus between doctrine and policies, and we will stand and die on doctrine matters. Doctrine matters. So yeah. as doctrine is degraded, so too then are the policies that yeah. come forth from a nation. That's right. There's a direct nexus between church doctrine and the country's policy. Yeah. No, you're you're exactly right. And you're you're never, by the way, gonna separate church and state. Just it, it, it'll never be that way. So you you know we we have the best I think system, but it's always going to be intertwined at some part. Things we'll talk about again down the road, but that's exactly right. Uh, also, um, um, well, I'll, I'll say that later. Let me, uh, okay, so what are some of the things, let me make sure I covered everything that uh, I wanted to cover. Let me just say this from George Whitfield, by the way. Um, understand the purpose of this class is church history, but for America, there's lots of factors that are tied into church history here. We have a unique setting. Uh, we're not England. We're not Germany. And so there is a unique setting in America that we have to talk through. But our primary goal is to talk about the piety, the, the, the true Christians. In other words, lots of our heroes, American heroes, are American heroes. But they're not church heroes. They're not. They're, in fact, men like John Adams, very religious man, very not a Christian man. Uh, he had he would have appeared to be a Christian man, but his doctrine was bad. Uh, he denied the Trinity. He all these things. So, 
a lot of our founders were like that, and, and everybody talked about God, so we're going we're gonna to be very careful on who was a true believer and who was not. We want to focus on the church, not America, but the way our country started, the church and, Amer- and the society are so intertwined, it's hard, it's hard to distinguish sometimes, so we just want to be careful with that, all right? So America is not the church. We want to be very careful. But even the, even the preachers of the early preachers, listen to George Whitfield. Unless, because I've heard some preachers say recently that religious liberty has become an idol. Religious liberty has become an idol. Maybe. I think more of the problem is we're just, we're ungrateful and we're arrogant and we're proud. I don't think it's become an idol. I think we just take it for granted. But even men like George Whitfield said, he's writing this letter. He's, it's a private conversation. Well, it was private when he said it. It's not private now, apparently. So I was like, I can't in conscience leave the town without acquainting you with a secret. My heart bleeds for America. Oh, poor New England. There is a deep laid plot against your civil and religious liberties, and they will be lost. Your golden days are at an end. You have nothing but trouble before you. Your liberties will be lost. It's interesting. The pastors took what he said, and they joined together and actually came up with the Stamp Act and, and some other things. But all that being said, this class is not... I'm just... All of this is tied in. It's not the focus. But as we approach some of these things, how does the church deal with it? How do we as Christians deal with it? We're going to talk about some of that. Because we deal with very simplistic arguments today. Christian nationalism or not Christian nationalism? Well, that's, that is not how this argument goes. It's, it's way more complicated. Should the colonies have rebelled against England? Very complicated topic. All right? I say yes, but we'll talk about that later. Um, all right, so let me, let's just quickly go through um, uh, some things here and some of the purposes, all right? By the way, let me ask you a couple questions before, before I do that. Um, why do so many Christians have such a low view of history? If the things I said were true and these other historians, why do we have a low view of history? Don't know much about it. Okay, yeah, don't know much, don't know much about it. Arrogance of what? The, of the modern. Okay, yeah, arrogance of the modern, okay. Yeah, because we, how can history really help us in a progressive um, technological age that we live in? Why are we going back? Yeah. Even the Romans understood the, the, the importance of ancient history, and they went back. Yeah, somebody else said? Yeah, yeah Richard. Just the way it's been taught. Just the way it's been taught, yeah. I mean, how many of you were bored in your high school history class? Just raise your hand, be honest. Yeah, yeah. Being boring, right? It's kind of boring. Huh? Parents don't really have a desire for it if they don't take much of it. Right. Right. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And so, you know, I mean, for some people, they just love it. How many of you loved history class in high school? Like it was your favorite or one of your favorites? All right, good. So, you know, we're kind of half and half. Um, how many of you, though, had a football coach that taught history? So, yeah, that's the problem. That's the problem. So there you go. <laughs> All right. We know where that comes from. <laughs> All right. I'm convinced that the downfall of our country was when football coaches started teaching history. I think it ruined our... Oh, my goodness. All right. Let me see. Let's keep moving because it's, it's kind of warm in here. Huh? Um, okay, so what are... Kind of a, a similar question. What are some of the ramifications of churches that do not teach church history. So what, what, 
happens to a church that does not teach church history beyond its own history? Doesn't prosper. That's one thing, yes. Blown by every wind of doctrine. They're easy prey. Easy prey. Non-denominational churches are easy prey for the next generation to just come in, change what the Bible has to say, and this says this to me. Uh, because they don't know history. They're not tied to anything beyond that person's interpretation of Scripture. And so that's not how the Lord has been building His church. A mentor of mine once told me, he says, you don't know where you're going unless you know where you are, and you don't know where you are unless you know where you've been. That's right. You're exactly right. And, that, and we're going to learn that uh, these few weeks. So good. Anything else? Any ramifications? I think you just miss out on a great blessing of saints that have gone on before us, right? I mean, testimony. We learn how to deal with trials through those who went on before us. Um, yeah, yeah. And we, and the church has done that over and over when we don't learn, right? So, all right, let me see here. All right, so let's bring this a little more to us personally, before we move on, how can we benefit as a church uh, or you as an individual by learning from church history? And let's just take it even more from learning from this class. In other words, why are you going to spend your hour in here in a hot room uh, learning? Maybe a personal strengthening. Personal strengthening? Okay, good. Good. Okay. Thank, more thankful. Hopefully it'll instill gratitude. Yes. It's fun to learn. Fun to learn. Good. Yeah. Keep that up. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good. To prepare. To prepare. All right. Yep. Yeah. I like seeing the hand of God throughout the whole history. Okay. That also then reminds me that he's working still today. That's right. We don't have to fear... I mean, yes, it, there's concerning things happening right now in America, but it, we don't have to fear because we know God is completely Correct. taking care of it all and He's in control. Good. Good, good. Still writing history. Yes, He's still writing history. And the reality is we don't know the future. Uh, we don't know the future. So, um, all right, let's, uh, I'm going to move forward here to then, uh, let me just say, by the way, other things. It is our duty. Um, to learn from history, it humbles us, it encourages us, it informs us. Uh, again, my, my hope is that because we have religious liberty right now, that we will use it as we're, we should be using it as Christians. Um, I do think that Christians would look at, the, from the past, would look at the Christians of today and weep at how they're using their religious liberty. Uh, it would, it would, it would, dis, they would be, they would be shocked. Uh, our culture is an idolatrous culture, and Christians are immersed in it. And that's exactly the thing we're going to talk about that they warned about over and over. Um, okay, uh, so let's look at, at some of the things we'll look. This is the good, the bad, and then the people, not the ugly. Uh, the good and the bad. The bad and the ugly is probably one and the same. But uh, So we, we're going to look at some of the movements uh, that take place. Right after the Revolution, we'll talk about is a deep, deep, dark time in America's history. Uh, we can blame the French to some degree, 
It's easy to do, but they really were part of the problem. Uh, they helped us in the war, but then they brought in a lot of bad, bad uh, the, the Voltaire and, and a lot of the uh, philosophers that really uh, impacted this country. So very dark time, but then through awakenings, we start seeing then this push to take the gospel into the community. And so we get these movements like the American Sunday School Union. Now, you're sitting in Sunday school today, and I, so I'm preaching to the choir, but how important is Sunday school to you? Because Sunday school is one of the primary means that evangelized our rapidly growing nation. No Sunday school, and we wouldn't have the effects. In fact, um, so, uh, Henry Clay Trumbull wrote that, it, he wrote this in 1888, America has been practically saved to Christianity and the religion of the Bible by Sunday school. Great impact on our country, right? Just Sunday school, uh, just going to Sunday school. Now, a lot of this was to reach un, uh, kids who didn't have any education. Then parents started coming. Then the church realized the importance of teaching the men and women of their church beyond just the message that was preached on a Sunday morning. But Sunday school grows up with America. And though it started in Britain, it really became an American. It's embedded in American society. Uh, by the way, who was the primary force in, behind the Sunday school movement? He wrote our national anthem, Francis Scott Key, and we'll talk about him. He, 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 he's more known for our national anthem, but he's, he loved the church, and the rest of his life was spent in the church and really making sure the gospel was going out across our country. Um, and so Francis Scott Key is a very important figure in church history. And what I like about this era, by the way, is a lot of these guys are not pastors. They're faithful men in the church. They're faithful men that served in the war, but then they are living their life in the church. And so we have pastors. We've got faithful men. We've got faithful women. So a lot of these were men that just gave their time. They recognized the eternal was more important than even the blessings they had in America, and, and they wanted to, to do that. Adam Smith, the economist, wrote, No plan has promised to affect a change of manners with equal, equal ease and simplicity as Sunday school. Next, we have the American Bible Society, another important thing uh, that God uses, where Bibles now becomes important after Thomas Paine uh, that we will talk about. Any of you read The Age of Reason? How many of you read it? If you want to be just sickened and just feel gross after you pick up a book because of his just cynical, it's just one thing after another of, of the Bible's foolishness, Christ is just a man, you know, Christians are ridiculous, the church is blah, 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 blah. But this gets a hold of our youth, and it is spreading throughout our country. Uh, and until the American Bible Society started, Elias Boudinot, who was one of our founding fathers, George Washington, he was over the spies in our, uh, the Revolutionary War. He's, he's a committed Christian, and he writes a book called The Age of Revelation to show that the age of reason is an age of infidelity. And he's concerned about the young people being persuaded by this book. And, and so the American Bible Society ends up being, this, being used by God in a, in a great way. Well, more on that later. Also, John Jay, uh, you might know that name, John Jay, a committed Christian, becomes one of the first presidents of the American Bible Society. John Adams asked him to, to come back on as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and John Jay says, 
I got more important things to do. And he, he wants to be part of the American Bible Society. And, and uh, it's interesting. He has such a high view of the Bible. You know, he was drafted. He drafted the first Constitution of New York. He was part of the Second Continental Congress, ambassador to Spain, helped negotiate the Treaty of Paris. John Adams wants to reappoint him to the Supreme Court. But his wife had died. His wife died, and, and at her bedside, he says he led his children who were with him into an adjoining room and with a firm voice but glistening eye read to them the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, thus leading their thoughts to that day when the lifeless but beloved from they had beloved form they had just left would rise to glory and immortality. He read his Bible every day to his family. Uh, and when he was about to die, when he was told he was dying, he was, it says he was unusually cheerful and animated when he's told he's about to die. And so his son said that he should share the reason with uh, his family. And he just simply replied, they have the book. They have the Bible. You know. So John Jay, a very godly, godly man. Um, and so just things like that. Uh, we have... Uh, American Missions Movement, Adoniram Judson and Ann Judson. If you, if you want to see what happens when you leave a country that has religious freedom and then try to take the gospel to a country that has zero religious freedom, we're going to learn what happens. And you're going to see Ann Judson lamenting her beloved America because of all of the freedoms that just to share the gospel. And now, again, we have different problems because we have freedom, and that presents a whole other problem. But their whole life was one obstacle after another, just trying to get the gospel out. We have freedom. We can go right now, and nobody's going to stop us, and we don't. So, again, we're going to learn, learn some of that. How do we use that religious liberty for God's glory? The Bible and education. How many of you have the McGuffey readers? Anybody? Good. McGuffey readers were impactful uh, in our nation's history. William McGuffey was a minister that wanted kids to learn their education from the Bible. And so millions upon millions of those were sold and really transformed the kids of our, uh, just really laid that foundation. And so we're going to talk about the Bible and education. The Reformation idea is you never teach your kids apart from the Bible. The Bible is the book. That does not mean homeschool is the only way. That does not mean Christian school is the only way. simply means the Bible is the foundation of education. And, and so we're going to talk about that. Okay. Uh, Doctrines of Grace, I already mentioned that. We're going to talk about why it matters. Why does it matter that we hold tightly to the Doctrines of Grace and not give in? There's a reason. Uh, and then spiritual awakenings. Next, we've got the bad. We've got the Age of Reason. I already said it did untold damage uh, to our country. Uh, Benjamin Franklin wouldn't even publish it by that point because, uh, because of how wicked the book is. We're going to look, by the way, at how Elias Boudinot dies and how Thomas Paine dies. Quite telling. Uh, the drift towards Unitarianism. America in this time, while revivals are taking place, this slow drift towards Unitarianism is happening. Uh, it happens before the Revolution. And they start really arguing with Jonathan Edwards' theology. And pretty soon some of the main pastors like Charles Chauncey and Jonathan Mayhew, who were, they were big names during the Revolution, but they were horrible when it came to Orthodoxy. They they really moved a lot of our churches away from Trinitarianism and, and so on. Very, very uh, important. And, and here's, what, here's why that's so important, because it happens so slowly. Uh, you wouldn't even know that they were drifting. They didn't really relay all that they had, but pretty soon, what became the target? A sovereign God. Sovereign God. 
We've got the theater. I, I, the more that I have studied recently, I have untold resources, untold. Every one of our ministers will talk about Congress passed laws. Do not let the theater in this country. We'll talk about that. We, can, we, can, we have 400 years, by the way, to evaluate if they were right or if they were just a little crazy in, in what they had to say. But, but we're going to look at two tragedies in the 1800s. Uh, two tragedies where the, the Richmond fire of 1811, uh, Eliza Poe, Edgar Allan Poe's mom, was supposed to, was supposed to act in it. Uh, they, she got sick. She ended up dying. Uh, they postponed the play. A few, a few nights later, they have this big play. Even Patrick Henry's daughter's in it. A lot of the big-name people are at this play, and, and a fire breaks out. And it's the first tragedy in American history where most of them were young women that were in the theater. And so it had such a great impact because men dying, they're used to that with war and, and all these different things. But to see the charred bodies of, of all of these girls and, and wives, uh, it just it completely devastated the nation. But, but it's, the interesting what the, it's interesting the thought and, and what is preached and what is just the, the kind of the pulse of the nation after that happens. And then we've got what other tragedy in the 1800s in the theater? What took place? Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln is getting ready to make his faith public the weekend he dies. Uh, he, is, he is firmly now attending a Presbyterian church that is very tied to Princeton, a very strong Calvinistic church. Uh, and he, he, die, he dies in the theater. His pastor, it's interesting, his pastor laments, they've become good friends pastor's been with him so often. But one of the things the pastor laments, it to, he gives that message to the nation is that the president died in a theater. And so we're going to talk about that. What, what is that? You know, we're, these are just, we're just looking at history. Again, the, thing, the, the benefit we have is that we can go back and say, yeah, we don't agree. We do agree. You know, we live in a different age. You know, we have all these different things. So talk about the theater. The new measures of Finney. Finney, again, great revivalist, but we find out very bad doctrine, and you begin to see, if you want to look at the area we live in, uh, you want to look at the area of New York that is now burn over. Uh, this area, not so much Finney, more Asbury, but when you look at what happens through quick decisionism, uh, you begin to see that it, it burns a district over, as they called it, and people get hardened to the gospel. There is a hardening to the true gospel. And so... Uh, have people walk an aisle really quick, and you're going to get quick decisions, and then you're going to get people to walk right away, and that was salvation. Uh, new measures of fitting. The democratization of American Christianity following the revolution, that whole spirit of revolution invades the church, and now they don't want any authority. They, they want clergy gone, and now we have different um, denominations starting up. You've got cults starting up, and it, America now, as Philip Schaff says, becomes this this place where every, I forget the exact term he used, but every bungler sells his, his where. I mean, every spiritual church is out there uh, because now people are in control and they want what they want, right? The explosion of cults, we're going to go from very sound teaching to now an explosion of cults in the 1800s uh, where people are hiding out on the hillsides waiting for Christ to return and you've got Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah Witness, Mormonism. By the way, Joseph Smith, no church history. In fact, all church history is bad. From the, apostles are good. All the rest of church history is bad until he comes on the scene. 
And that's how he gets people to follow him. You know, you don't know church history. And then the soul unprepared for death. I want to do one um, on Edgar Allan Poe's view of death. Uh, so we'll turn out the lights and light can't. No, we won't do that. But uh, <laughs> my wife would kill me if I even tried to do this. So. Um, what I'm fascinated by is, is Edgar Allan Poe sees his mom die of tuberculosis, I think at two or three years old. But he writes this really fascinating story called William Wilson. Anybody read that, William Wilson? And it's on free will. Notice William Wilson. He's got a plate into the, plate into the name. And it's a fascinating, uh, fascinating writing. Uh, of course, he wrote that. Things like Annabelle Lee, you probably know that, right? right? It was many and many a year ago in a kingdom by the sea that a maiden there lived whom you may know by the name of Annabelle Lee. And this maiden she lived with no other thought than to love and be loved by me. But then he goes on to say, and this was the reason that long ago in this kingdom by the sea, a wind blew out of a cloud, chilling my beautiful Annabelle Lee, so that her highborn kinsmen came and bore her away from me to shut her up in a sepulcher in this kingdom by the sea. And then he goes on to blame angels. The angels are jealous of their love uh, for one another, and so the angels take her. Anyways, sorry. That was a little bit off topic. Just simply to say, Edgar Allan Poe is fascinated by death, but he doesn't prepare for death. And we're going to look at men, some of the great preachers, the pious preachers that were that uh, were uh, that prepared their people for death. That we need to be prepared, not fascinated by it, but prepared for it. So, just a couple. Some of the people will stay again. This will be my last slide. We'll get you out of here. Uh, so Samuel Davies, really the greatest preacher America's ever produced. Uh, Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry is a teenager. And he, and he goes to hear Samuel Davies preach. Patrick Henry is the greatest orator probably our nation has ever produced. His deathbed scene is so moving. I, I, and, and he is a man of the people. I think he, he's, he holds on to, his, to true Christianity in a time when everybody else was not. Uh, and he is a friend to dissenters. He is a friend to those who wouldn't, that, was, that were not allowed to worship in Virginia. And so he spends his life as Virginia's Anglican. And so Presbyterians, Baptists, nobody else is allowed to worship in Virginia. John Witherspoon, signer, the only clergyman to sign a Declaration of Independence. Uh, we talked a little bit about him uh, on our trip, but a phenomenal man uh, who wrote the greatest treatise, according to John Newton, on regeneration, and yet was the man when everybody was silent when they were about to sign the Declaration of Independence. It's John Witherspoon that starts, uh, that, that stands up and boldly declares we need to sign this. He's so hated by the British that they find another pastor they think is John Witherspoon, and they bayonet him to death uh, because they thought they had John Witherspoon. And, and so, uh, but it's his godliness that we're going to go after. Um, again, uh, Francis Scott Key, Adoniram Man Judson, William McGuffey, Francis Asbury, the Methodist circuit-riding preacher. Then these guys, Edward Payson, Edward Dorr Griffin, Asael Nettleton, godly pastors, uh, that God will use to bring about the Second Great Awakening. God will use their preaching to bring this about. And then uh, Archibald Alexander and Charles Hodge, these men of Princeton that, that so uh, really influenced the whole next hundred years. Uh, very important. Charles Hodge is the grandson, great-grandson of Benjamin Franklin. And so he will, uh, you know, the, Princeton really is the seedbed of, of a lot of things. So, all right. That was a little long. Uh, we won't normally go long, except next week we will, probably. But after that, we're going to cut this down to about 35 to 40 minutes. Um, any questions? Any questions?
Yeah. Can you kind of cover like the uh, points of disagreement between Martin Luther and John Calvin? Uh, that would be another class. Um, we are going to talk about Martin Luther's view of reason and how did we get to a place in America in the Enlightenment where reason superseded Scripture. So that is the one thing, Luther and Calvin, their understanding of reason versus what the Enlightenment's view of reason, and it had a great impact on our nation. So we do need to have a biblical view of reason. For now, that's probably the only thing we're going to get into because that would be in the Reformation history class. Which, by the way, that's where I was heading. I just, I'll be honest, the, the other part of this is there is a reason why our history is under direct attack. Uh, it's not under attack like it is here in England or in Europe as much. America's history and Christian history is under attack. And so I just felt like, you know, we need to keep educating ourselves because it's on our front door right now. But we're going to go back and we're going to do Reformation history and uh, we're going to do a class on Rome, uh, the emergence of the Roman Catholic Church, and uh, again, because it's just always an issue. Um, and then work through medieval history and ancient church history. So we're, we're, it's all coming. We're just, we're, I just, we're not getting there yet. All right, anything else? Yeah, Barbie. Yeah, this will be all through it. Our nation is a battle between Calvinism and Arminianism. We're a Unitarian. It goes to Unitarianism because of Arminianism first. First, they want to deny God's sovereignty, and then it, it just drifts towards other things. So, yes, that'll be a big, a big part of this. Yeah. yeah. Uh, will you or do you have like a list of primary and secondary source I do. documents that you recommend? Yeah, I've got a whole bibliography that I had for part one. Uh, I, what I'll do is I'll put all the resources, attach them to that one, uh, and then I, I, I usually give that out. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Anything else quickly? All right. Well, thank you, guys. I know it's warm. I'll have to figure out a way to, to uh, cool this down in here. Open the windows, I guess. So if, you're, if you get cold really easy, you want to sit over here. If you get hot really easy, you want to sit over here. All right. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for uh, the weekend we thank you that it is your church, Lord, that matters, that we are to invest our whole life, all that we are, into your church. We're thankful that you are building your church. We're thankful that even if America falls, the church will never fall. We're thankful that you have worked so mightily in our own nation. Lord, we're thankful for that. We're thankful that we live in a country where we have Thanksgiving, where we acknowledge you, that uh, a country where we can come freely to church each week and can share the gospel. And, and uh, even as of yet, that we have maintained most of our liberties. And I pray that we would not squander that on our own foolishness and laziness. I pray that we would cherish what we have so that we can glorify you uh, in ways that we wouldn't be able to in other countries. I pray that we would not make America an idol in any way. Just simply be grateful for it. I just pray as we head our separate ways today that we would rejoice in the Lord's Day. We're thankful that we had a country that, that this day was set aside for many, many years to be able to focus on eternity. And I just pray that we'd use that well. I pray that we would keep our eyes fixed on eternity. I pray that we would encourage one another. And I pray as we head our separate ways that you would keep us safe and that we would get rest and uh, that we would get ready to serve you this coming week. In Jesus' name, amen.